Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with New York City jazz saxophonist, flutist, and composer, the great Steve Schlegel. He was born in Los Angeles, raised in Philadelphia, and now calls New York City his home, and he's done that for quite some time. He just released 2017's dedication that is charting well, and it's another gem in his entire line of music throughout his career. After going to the Berklee College of Music and getting a master's degree in music from the Manhattan School of Music, he would play with the best in the business, like Lionel Hampton, Brother Jack McDuff, Carla Blay, along with traveling and performing with the legends Woody Herman and Cab Calloway. His career path has taken him all over the world, and it's been a very good one, full of stories and wisdom. So get to know him and dig this interview, my friends. Steve, thank you for taking a minute out. It's an honor to speak with you. Oh, my pleasure. You're in uh, Kansas, are you? I'm, I'm in Kansas City, the home of Bird. Oh, far out. Yeah. Home of a lot of good people, yeah. One of the cradles. Yeah, so you spent some good time here? Well, you know, playing, yeah, for sure over the years. Um, you know, I, I've played in, in Kansas and then all over the Midwest. So, yeah, for sure. Right on. So let me go ahead and start off here. One of the things that's charting for you pretty well these days is dedication. It really leaped quite a bit, actually, over the last couple of weeks. Talk to me about this album. How do you feel about this release? Oh, great. I'm glad to hear that because at first I, I thought you were going to say Alto Manhattan, which was, got a lot of play last year, and de Dedication actually just came out. So I'm glad you say that because it's only been out about a week. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and um, it, I have gotten a lot of a lot of notice. It just went up on, on the Internet sites just a day or so ago, and um, I'm really happy, you know, to have it out there because it was a lot of work, you know, about a year's worth of writing music that um, – you know, the whole dedication concept is kind of du a double meaning because, uh, I, of course, you can't help but realize that it, that in this music that we're involved with, which is never considered pop, not that I even like those categories because I like music to be popular, but the point being that, you know, we're put in a category jazz that automatically makes it that you got to be pretty dedicated because a lot of people just automatically have have a certain attitude uh, you know without even knowing and also if you ask uh if you ask 20 people what jazz is you're going to get 20 different answers so in other words it's kind of obscure and so the, the the dedication part of it is obvious but then what I when I started writing each song seemed to be uh have a certain person or place in mind after I wrote it not really when I'm writing a song I I I actually don't think that way it's it's almost after something is born that then you find a name for it or, or a, uh, you know, it, you go like, oh, that's like this kind of, because when it comes, it's just purely music and, and you don't really have, uh, you know, necessarily a, a name in mind. But, but, uh, you know, when, when, when they, when I started playing them, I, you know, it became pretty clear that different ones like, uh, and, and who they're dedicated to. So each song has a separate dedication. Uh, on it you know it's interesting the stigmata that jazz does bring with it you know you came into the scene in new york in the mid to late 70s and you were around a lot of story cats like lionel hampton and brother jack mcduff and a lot of these guys that have were practitioners for years and years and years it didn't seem like there was that much of a stigmata at that time and even before that what happened how did we get to that point where that's what's going on well, that's a deep question because, first of all, when you're saying somebody like Lionel Hampton, you're talking about an, an era that hardly anybody's alive still from that era, and 
he was at that time that he came up jazz was the popular dance music and so you you have to understand that Lionel Hampton was an absolute superstar you know was uh like Louis Armstrong and the, the people you can name that when when I played with him he would fill huge the largest concert halls in Europe you know the ones that now rock bands are playing in or some jazz uh concerts but the point being that there's a big difference between saying Lionel Hampton and Jack McDuff. Um, I don't mean in musical talent. I mean in uh, in the business world. So, so the first and foremost is to realize that some people don't realize that that Lionel was a huge huge star, you know. And and um, so that is an era when when jazz was uh, the so-called popular music. I I think um, there's a lot of factors on that 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 could. Um, be talked about for hours, but the main thing as an artist, you know, whether you're a painter of, of, of songs or a painter of canvas, you do, you know, you do what is your voice, what is your, um, uh, what you've developed as your sound or your voice, and then uh, the rest falls into the business category and, and the cultural category, and that's a whole different subject, but for me, you know, I've, I'm at the point now where I, I do exactly what I want to do in music, and then let the chips fall where they where they may. You know. So let's talk about the beginnings of your life. You were born in L.A., raised in Philadelphia. Now you're in New York. Talk to me about how you got into not only music but more specifically jazz. Well, I was lucky, in, in I guess, it, it, to be born into it in the sense that first of all, I. Um, at a real young age, uh, listened to the records of my parents and my uncles and various people in my family, grandfather and, and all were playing. And, and and so before I even could uh, speak, I was hearing records, you know, that uh, were, are now considered classic records, you know, uh, around about midnight and, and, and stuff, you know, uh, kind of blue and stuff is what I grew up with. And I just always liked the music, but I also specifically liked the sound of the saxophone. So at a really young age, you know, before I could articulate it, I just liked the sound of it. And so as soon as I got to be old enough to be able to hold one, which really um, you have to kind of be about fourth grade or so before you can actually, in other words, piano and drums are actually the best instruments to start on. Um, although many people don't start on the drums, I think that's actually the best instrument to start on, to be to be truthful, because anybody can can play it at any age. But with saxophone, as soon as I got uh, physically big enough to hold one, I got one, and, and uh, from then on I've been playing. You went to the Berklee College of Music. You got your master's from the Manhattan School. You're a well-educated man. What did formal education teach you? You've obviously gotten a lot of experience throughout your life, just being on a stage, but what did formal education give you? It, it depends specifically on on the teachers and 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 classes, but certainly certain certain teachers and certain um, curriculums really really were, were helpful. I, I do think that um, you learn this music um, uh, in a way like separate from uh, a college or university, and then you take what you learn to there and meet other people because I, I don't really think you can learn jazz in any school but um but i do think it's helpful to be around especially when i went to berkeley at the age of 18 suddenly i was thrown into a a um you know a world-class environment where in other words it, everyone from berkeley was from all over the world and 
where any of the places that I came from, I was just in the the, the area that I went to school, and it would it would be it was a lot more limited. So the great thing about a school like Berkeley is that, and Manhattan School of Music too, is that they bring people from all over the world that that are um, that are doing similar things that you're doing, and so you meet people that are your age that are doing it, and I think that's even the most important thing. And then, the, you know, the curriculum of the school varies from school to school. I've also taught or done clinics at, you know, countless number of schools, and, you know, some have better uh, systems and curriculums than others, and it seems to be here to stay now. It wasn't when I first uh, it was 18 and went to Berkeley. There were only about three or four in the whole world schools that actually, in other words, Manhattan School of Music at that time did not you could not get in there as a saxophone player. Um, it wasn't until much later. So, so uh, when I started, it was very few, and now it's thousands. And that's something that's happened in my lifetime. You know, um, it's changed what the business of music is because now uh, getting a teaching job is almost more important than getting a recording. But I, I, I still believe that the art of recording and playing music live is, is the highest level of the art and that um, education is a subset of that, you know. Speaking about the ultimate education, you arrive in New York in the mid-'70s. What was it like at that time? How exciting was it? Well, it was a lot different um, and, and, and in some ways the same because New York has always had a an aura uh, to it. But uh, the uh, specific thing in the 70s was um, – well, I, I I came in '77, so it would be kind of the late '70s when I got here. But it was rolling in the sense of um, uh, you could find places to live and even large lofts and stuff, you know, fairly easily. I mean, if you pooled your mother money up with a few uh, other musicians and stuff, you could get a loft and and be playing music 24/7 in New York City. And there was there was a certain uh, uh, great uh, energy to that, which only lasted maybe about ten years, and then things kind of changed. But I, I came at that time, uh, not even knowing that that was the sense. I came to New York because you know all the musicians I knew and all the recordings I was listening to were all done in New York, you know. And I always, as a kid, um, with uh, you know whoever could drive a car, I would go into New York when I was fifteen or sixteen and and see uh, Thelonious Monk or Miles or uh, somebody uh, like Mingus. And, and so at a young age, I knew New York was the place where, who, who, that was the best. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much been my home for, for way more than half my life. You know? So, you know, the one thing about uh, a musician is, is that by osmosis over the years, you kind of become a teacher because of those you played with. What did you learn from the likes of Woody Herman or Cab Calloway and, and even Lionel Hampton. What what did they give you that not only helped you but made you a better teacher to younger players? Well, each one was different. And if I, it, it, with a smile, I'd have to say the one thing they gave me was employment, and that's the most <laughs> important thing. Uh, and that's no joke. And uh, each one of them was different. Um, I especially think Cab Calloway is, is not um, uh, recognized as, as a, really great gentleman and leader that he was. He was one of the of the ones you named, one of the ones that was the most um, pleasant to know and, and uh, 
very, I, I, I guess you could say he had this kind of sophistication that I think Duke Ellington and some of the greats from that era, you know, had. I, I never met Duke Ellington, but I, I think Cab was a close, um, Cab rubbed shoulders with all those people and kind of had that kind of sophistication. And so I, with him, I learned that, uh, and also he, he let you play and he, he really, he loved the saxophone and he would talk about, you know, uh, uh, people that had played with him. And, uh, so yeah, there was a real walking history book that, uh, now the younger students I have have, have no idea about that. And I, I'm glad I kind of caught the tail end of it, you know, because really Cab was a, an elderly man by the time I played with him and so was Lionel. And so it's really kind of the tail end that I caught and I, I'm glad I did. Um, at the time, to be honest with you, I was just happy to be being employed playing my instrument, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, the one thing that's been really cool about your career is that you've really done a lot of cross-genre stuff. You know, you've played with St. Vincent, Elvis Costello, the Beastie Boys. What Have you had to retool the way you approach the stage or a recording being with those kinds of musicians that are oh, strictly Oh, not, not at all. No, not at all. Um, any of those that you mentioned... Uh, uh, the answer would be no. It's exactly the same. Uh, Elvis Costello is a really uh, uh, open-minded uh, musician, and, and so uh, you, what he does is play himself, and he, what he wants you to do is play yourself. And so, uh, and and for instance, with the Beastie Boys, I was just a record date. They called me and wanted a a, a, a flute sound, and I, you know, they had heard my uh, recording of me on flute, and they wanted. Um, something like that on, on their record. So that's specifically them calling and wanting my sound. So, no, uh, none of that ever has to do with uh, changing uh, what what is you, you know. And um, so th- th- that that's, um, you know, you, you take yourself to a situation, and that's, that's really what it is. All right, so let's talk a little bit about change here. You know, you've had the chance to go around the world, you know, Western Europe, Japan, South America, just Russia, all over the place. How how much did travel influence you and your music? Oh, well, that's a great question, Joe, because um, that's something sometimes I, I reflect on is that when, let's say, I'm a kid in Los Angeles getting my first saxophone, to be honest with you, all I thought was I wanted to play the saxophone, and I wouldn't, in my mind, if I stayed where I was born and was able to play the saxophone my whole life, that would be my ambition. And so I never really realized at all that this music took, has taken me all around the world. And, and for sure, that actually would be the uh, the biggest um, uh, thing that really opens you up and, and gives you experiences that you otherwise unless you were very wealthy and uh, a bon vivant that just traveled around the world, which there are, is just the 1%, which we certainly aren't. Um, they, they, with the musician, you can see the world uh, more than most billionaires do, and I, I'm lucky I did, and it for sure gives you a perspective on the country you're from. I mean, I'm definitely a, a, a from the United States, and my music is is reflects that, but... My experience has has been to see reactions to my music even stronger in other countries than in the area that I even was born in. You know, like for instance, Japan and 
uh, Italy, France, uh, I could keep going, Sweden and all have have um really had had some sometimes greater audiences and greater respect for what I do than even uh, areas in the country where I live. And so that gives me a a different perspective on this whole uh world thing and this whole nationalism that's happening right now. To me it's um it's not true. I I I I think that, you know the music is a universal language, and so as you as you get further and explore further, you realize that there aren't the boundaries that everyone else, the walls that everyone else wants to set up, or really don't exist. You know. Yeah, you know something that's kind of hyper local to what today, being the day that Pearl Harbor was attacked. I, you know, being a lifelong New Yorker and, and living through 9-11, speaking of nationalism and things that kind of pull you together, how did living through that, being a native, New or being in New York as long as you have, how did that affect the way you played your horn or the way you played the flute? I, I, I was here that day and living, in fact, in the same area that I, I mean, the same apartment that I have uh, now. I, I, um, I'm right on the Hudson River straight up from the World Trade Center. Uh, the Hudson River just goes straight uh, to my door, and so there's literally the smoke and fumes of it uh, reached here by that evening, and certainly by that next morning, it was like a, a horrible smell in the air, and, and um, uh, which lasted for a day or so, But and that's just a physical thing. But mentally, it, um, well, it was huge. We, we actually were... Um, we were supposed to do a two-week tour with Joe Lovano's Nonette, and we had uh, just done the, the record that we won a Grammy for, uh, 50 Second Street Themes, and I, I, I've arranged for the band, and it was a great band, and we were going to go on a two-week tour that that Tuesday. And we were supposed to fly that Tuesday to uh, California, in fact, and um, uh, that was all canceled because plane flights were uh uh, you know, and so so again, it has to do with employment, and it, it for sure affects employment. But then, when you start uh, counting the uh, the catastrophe of uh, people's lives and different friends of mine who directly lost loved ones, it just uh, to this, to this day, it's still a um, a, a, a huge uh, uh, sore spot and and. Um, uh, you know, a, a, a catastrophe that you, you you were living part of, and you don't forget. And um, I, I, you know, I'm interestingly that year I had a record out called New New York on Omnitone Records, which is now um, a defunct label. But um, I had before 9/11, a year before, uh, recorded this record called New New York, which um, to me was. Uh, symbolic when that happened because New York is always becoming something new and morphing into something uh, slightly different and, and that, these kind of things make make changes like that um, for sometimes for the better and sometimes for the worst but music endures in, in the worst and, and the best times and so um, it doesn't ever stop sometimes when the economy is the worst the music is the best and um so, you know, as an artist, you, you reflect on all these things, and they definitely affect your art, you know. Absolutely. Speaking of your art, after all of these years that you've played, how do you feel about your career? How do you think everything's panned out up to this point? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, glad that I was able to, I have been able to uh, make a living 
playing, you know, the saxophone and, and, and flute and writing music. You, you're always more happy when the phone rings and for, for, the, for the next project, but I'm very, um, feel very fortunate that I found a great producer in Rick Simpson who, um, has produced the last three records that I've done. He's a, a great ally to the music and has kind of started his own business of production. And so the last three records I've done, starting with Roots with Dave Stryker and then Alto Manhattan, which has the double meaning because that's really where I live. Uh, Alto is the upper Manhattan and the Latino uh, folks in my neighborhood refer to this as Alto Manhattan. So when I made the record, it totally made sense to me. And that was uh, Rick Simpson's first production of my solo record. And then this new one, Dedication, um, which is just coming out, is also his um, executive. He's executive producer. I, I produce the music and the, the uh, logistics of getting the players and all, but he's the executive producer of of the uh, record. And that's been uh, really fortunate. And so I, I um, that's what I'm looking for, and that's what I hope can keep happening, you know, to be able to have your own voice out there and uh, work. And, and that's really, uh, you know, I feel happy about that. The business, I, you know, I have uh, daughters that uh, have interest in music and talent, and I don't, um, they're young, very young, um, but uh, I don't necessarily encourage or discourage uh, anyone getting into the business into the business of music but i think uh, you know the art of music and the business are two two different things and so you kind of you have to kind of be savvy in both of them because you you can't just be the artist side because there is a whole business and um to it and 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 so that that's part of the part of the deal on what you have to spend a lot of time on uh and and that's you know another side of it but no all in all i i i feel like I, I i came here at a great time and i feel like it's a great time now i mean people talk about the golden era of this and that but i honestly joe i always feel like in any era that you live in is a golden era you know and and i don't mean that in any light sense you know in a cliche or anything i just think that it's always the golden era you know and the next, the next time you play is the golden moment, you know. And uh, I, I always feel that. I feel like it's always getting better. Like the, the new record, I feel is the best uh, I've ever done. And I, I think I, I, I guess I, I always feel that. But uh, it's always for the moment, you know. Absolutely. Well, let's just speak strictly of art here, and let me ask you this: Why do you love jazz? I think it's the most. Uh, creative form of music that's come down on the planet. The only thing I could compare it to would be the, the hundreds and hundreds of years old Indian uh, music where they uh, also base their music on improvisation. And that's the only music I think that, that um, at least is codified that uh, has existed longer than jazz. It's based purely on improvisation. And and, um, and then also the rhythmic aspect of, of drums and the importance of rhythm in the music uh to me makes jazz unique i you know with a lot of american pop music i i like some of them but but uh the, the ones that don't have a lot of rhythm or good uh polyrhythm to it are not interesting to, to me you know and so to me the uh music of jazz has the most rhythm to it and also the most creativity um 
there there is one thing to make polishing a song and playing exactly the same every time, which is kind of a certain kind of uh, top mentality. But you know that gets pretty boring after a while, and you see that a lot of uh, people that just go and play a song the same way every time, pretty soon they 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 can't do it. Uh, so the thing about uh, because it's no fun. It, 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 music is a spirit, you know, I, I believe, any music, not just jazz, but all music is a spirit, and you have to treat the spirit the right way for it to give back to you, and um, I think uh, the history of jazz shows that there's some people have, have really called on that spirit pretty strongly, and uh, so I like to try to continue calling it, you know. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. Everyone has a version of who you are, your family, your friends, your fans, those that you perform for. But when you wake up and you face the world, who do you think you are? Huh. That's a good one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never really know how other people think of you. And, and when you read reviews or anything, you, you know, you take them with a grain of salt and because uh, – there's an art to writing words too, and some reviewers aren't very good at that art period, even no matter what they're writing about. But when I wake up in the morning, I'm glad to be alive, and I'm I'm happy if I can spend. If I'm not working or doing a gig, I'm happy if I can be writing music and really practicing, um, practicing music. Um, uh, I I that never ends for me uh never ends and and um uh you know right now i'm working on a piece that's harmonically really difficult and trying to figure out how to work work it out and play it myself and so um we're you know that to me is what i am the rest is uh is making a living and being able to pay uh pay the bills but i'm happy if i can spend my time in in music and in in any way that's beautiful. That's a great way, I think, to wrap everything up. Steve, thank you for taking a minute, being gracious enough to talk to me about your new album and about your life and music. Thanks for the music. Oh, Joe, it's my pleasure. And, and keep the faith strong, man. I, I, I really, I think, I've discovered through the last few records how many radio stations there are in the United States that are uh, playing the music either on the Internet or, or on traditional radio waves or whatever way, and I, I I don't discount that at all now, and I kind of appreciate it even more than I used to because of these last two records because I realize they're getting played all over the country, and I think the people like you that are, that are doing that are, are really a huge part of keeping this music alive. We're only as good as the shoulders we stand on, and you guys are the ones putting it out there, so I appreciate it, absolutely. And it's Thank my pleasure. You, Joe. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Los Angeles, Philadelphia, New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Steve for his time, his wisdom, and his stories. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, visit NeonJazz at YouTube.com, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the NeonJazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.